This week, a great conversation talking about what AI really is, how we should be using it, and some of the maybe concerns around AI ethics. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with Lisa Rao, the co-founder of Fionta. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, George. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, we've known each other for a while. You're you're part of our esteemed vendor network, people that we absolutely trust to do great work out there in the world. But for those that don't know, uh, Lisa, can you tell us a bit about Fionta? Sure. So Fionta was started 18 years ago to fill what we identified as a void in the nonprofit sector in getting affordable, quality, technical information technology services. And so uh, we've been working with nonprofits now for the past 18 years, primarily doing work with Salesforce uh, and their nonprofit uh, software and with web design and development and then strategic technology consulting. Awesome. Yeah, and I will say we uh, we love you all for, for Salesforce support when I'm confused. But recently, you've shown up on my radar in particular because of your work and conversations and statements and writing and, and talking about AI. Why don't you why don't you just walk us through what is getting you excited about AI? Well, in order to do that, I really have to go back a ways because I actually got started in AI in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, when I was back at Berkeley in their Berkeley Artificial Intelligence Research Group where I was studying computer science. I ended up getting my PhD in artificial intelligence and went on to do research in AI at a large uh, GE's corporate research facility for many, many years. And at that point, it seemed like AI was all hype and was never going to be something that people could uh, really use, which is kind of uh, disturbing coming from someone who specializes in the area to think that the technology was never going to be useful by the consumer. Uh, But as uh, we've seen recently in the last few years, AI has made some dramatic Shifts, And the thing I'm most excited about is that it is finally reaching the consumer now and doesn't require uh, the heavy development of complex and custom models and very expensive techniques to implement. And that means that we're really on the brink of seeing artificial intelligence be incorporated into our day-to-day much more, and that is very exciting. That's near term. But if I can, uh, what I'm really excited about is stuff that's still science fiction, but we're starting to see some really amazing glimmers, uh, robotic arms that are actually controlled by human brains, uh, having severed brains actually demonstrate electrical activity after the individual's dead. I want to think about how machines will become more like us and even more exciting, what 
they're going to look like when they become more like themselves. So I think, uh, of course, we've gotten into artificial intelligence because the possibilities are really very, very exciting and thought-provoking, and uh, it's a it's a great to be living in this time of great technology change. Yeah, there's uh, certainly no shortage of the what's possible, and we've moved through. I think you're you're sort of noting the the AI winter where we're like, you know, there's no pony here. This is never going to be a thing. You know, we don't have the tech. We may never have the tech to to make these. Uh, types of resource-heavy queries and, and actions, right? Well, it's interesting that you use the term AI winter because it's actually AI winters. And over the last 30, 40 years, it has been very cyclic where we'll see a lot of hype uh, and a lot of stories about, oh, artificial intelligence is coming and the robots are coming and the self-driving cars and then there'll be uh, investment uh, corresponding to a lot of the hype, and then it will kind of drop off and we'll enter into this AI winter, which we have had at least two AI winters in the last uh, few decades. And right now, I believe we are on a cusp where we are finally going to see some of the promise that the AI hype has uh, been hyping <laughs> for so long. And that's uh, it's really a pivotal moment. And uh, this time, for the first time, I feel fairly optimistic that it isn't hype. It's real. So this is like when your friends hype how awesome Hamilton is, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this show's been hyped so much. There's no way it meets expectation. And then it does, and then even exceeds it. <laughs> right? So like this is like the Hamilton moment. <laughs> yes. I need everything yes, in Broadway I terms. I need everything in musical Broadway terms. I Before <laughs> our audience gets sort of like – you know, all right, we're talking about, you know, 2001, a space odyssey situation here. Lisa, I need you to explain what I need to know about AI as though I were the sort of chairman of the board or executive of uh, a mid to large nonprofit. Like, what do I do? I need to know that there's a robotic arm somewhere trying to flip over a cup. Uh, I I couldn't answer that. I assume one thing I know about nonprofits is that there's a nonprofit for everything. And there are nonprofits whose missions are to help disabled individuals to uh, function with as few impediments as possible. And in that context, I do think that robotic arms would be something of great interest. But I don't think that's really what you were asking. Um, really, uh, AI doesn't work without large quantities of data. And so I think that's the first thing if you're in a nonprofit to ask yourself to determine if this is something that you should be considering is to do an assessment of the quantity and quality of data that you're collecting because without those large volumes, the technology still will not do anything. Okay, so let's go further into this. Give me the crash course. Like, how do you explain AI to your uh, to your parents? Well, um, the classic definition is very accessible, which is that AI is when the computer is doing things normally thought of as reserved for humans, demonstrating. I'm putting intelligence in air quotes, uh, but uh, what's 
what's beyond that definition is that as soon as we program computers to do something human-like, it's no longer artificial intelligence. That's the joke among us uh, AI people, is that once we've figured out how to program a computer to do something like play Go or play chess, uh, at that point it's just an algorithm and there's nothing special about it. But I think it's very important to understand a fundamental aspect of uh, artificial intelligence and how it works and what it can and cannot do. So we often talk about uh, a narrow version of AI, which is artificial intelligence that can do one thing really, really well. And an example is the game-playing examples that I've given. There are many examples of what in the past used to be called expert systems. So, for example, a doctor can type in a patient's symptoms and the AI system will recommend certain potential diagnoses, hoping to help the physician not to overlook uh, all possibilities there. And then a very broad AI where the computer can deal with inputs beyond a very constrained problem. And I'll just give you a, a compelling, hopefully compelling, timely example of this. Um, for those of you who uh, are aware of what's going on or what has gone on in the show Jeopardy in late April with James Holzhauer uh, really uh, becoming the most, uh, the richest Jeopardy winner, the most successful Jeopardy player in all time. In February 2011, IBM has a long history of uh, innovation in AI, and they have a technology that's called Watson. And they programmed Watson to play Jeopardy, which is an example of the narrow AI that I was just talking about. And in the contest, it did win. But it got some of the answers very, very wrong. For example, uh, one of the questions asked for a set of U.S. cities, uh, which U.S. city, blah, blah, blah. And Watson suggested Toronto, Canada. Uh, and it also stumbled by suggesting that a chemise was a clue from the also on your computer keys category. And I bring up these two examples because it really shows that the computers are very good at matching questions to large databases of potential answers, but they don't actually understand anything. And this is a very important uh, concept when you're thinking about AI. We're all being uh, sold on this idea of the singularity when computers become self-aware and can start making decisions on their own and learning on their own. Uh, but we're quite far away from that. We're still in the mode of computers that are just doing what they were programmed to do and do it very in a very sophisticated way and much faster than we are with access to a lot more information. But we still are very far away from computers truly understanding anything. Gotcha. So you were talking about great examples of narrow AI, and then I guess the alternative to that is broad AI. Is there any examples of broad AI, or is that 
a you know a, a future far away i think that's uh well broad ai actually is here today and I started out by saying I was very excited about the fact that AI is finally working and may have real applicability. We already see it. For example, in uh, Netflix, when you see how smart they are about recommending movies to you, I mean, this is a commercial application of of very advanced kinds of uh, matching algorithms. For uh, broad AI to work, the major innovation that's been enabling the drive down to consumer use of AI or nonprofit use of AI is the ability for systems to learn without having to have a model of what they're trying to learn created for them in advance. And I know that's a little bit uh, abstract, but the main limiting factor that we finally overcome is that Computers can not only learn patterns and discover information in large quantities of data, but the AI subcategory of machine learning has allowed computers to learn the models that make that type of analysis possible. And this was really a major breakthrough. It wasn't a technical breakthrough in that it was really leveraging existing uh, existing technologies, but the computers got fast enough and the data got large enough so that enough calculations, if you will, could be done so that you could set AI up on a large database of data and it would first figure out uh, what the blocks of, of conceptual information are. For example, it may know that there's demographic information that goes with people and that that forms one concept, if you will. It can group together independent pieces of information into larger chunks, which the chunks are what are analogous to conceptual information and can really then work with that more conceptual information to form discoveries. I know this is a little long uh, answer to your question, which was, what about broad AI? And with the advent of computers learning their own models, computers don't have to be uh, time-consumingly programmed by experts to develop these models. They can actually do that work for us, which was a precondition to the actual analysis process. And then... I hear a lot of people talk about machine learning. Is that the same thing as AI? What is the relationship of machine learning to AI? So machine learning is a subcategory of AI. So artificial intelligence has uh, sub-disciplines, as in most scientific areas. Uh, My my sub-area was in natural language processing, which is getting computers to be able to not just read text, or understand or parse speech, but to actually understand what the text means. Machine learning is another subdiscipline of artificial intelligence, which is where computers can be set on data and they can learn from that data other information without uh, a lot of human uh, interaction. And that's that machine. Other subareas are uh, vision processing. So. Many of us have read about China's uh, incorporation of facial recognition technology, which is based on image processing. 
and that's another example where artificial intelligence has just leapfrogged into the uh, commercial, in this case, government arena. And there's also robotics is another sub-area of AI. So machine learning is, though, the most important sub-area that has been, that's caused AI to be flowing down into the consumer and nonprofit sector because of those advances. Yeah, so let's go to our sector. Let's go and say, all right, what are some interesting AI for good applications that that you've seen that have you excited? So there's a lot of areas where nonprofits can use uh, AI technology. Um, I'm going to go through the examples that I'm most familiar with. Uh, We focus, as mentioned, on Salesforce, which is the number one constituent relationship management system uh, in the world and has a nonprofit version for fundraising and volunteer management and event management and other business processes that nonprofits use. So Salesforce has been a leader in the incorporation of artificial intelligence into their software. And they pr- there's a lot of functionality that comes out of the box with some basic configuration to do things like guiding development officers to the best donor leads that they may have to increase their donor conversion rates and raise more funds. The system can also automatically identify uh, pledges, for example, that were scheduled to close and suggest that uh, suggest to the user that they may want to send them an email. It can score Uh, participants to, for example, determine how likely they are to complete a program and do other kinds of automated uh, forecasting. So the artificial intelligence is really the opportunities for artificial intelligence for nonprofits are throughout the, the business processes. It can be used for automatically capturing information from text You can incorporate applications of natural language processing, for example, to read uh, narrative reports coming from constituents or from program participants. If you, your nonprofit collects images, for example, if you're, let's say, an environmental group, you can use vision processing to, for example, calculate the seeding glaciers and automatically identify deforestation in other countries, uh, things like that. And overall, just trying to discover insights in your data, predicting outcomes, recommending best actions to take to maximize engagements, and automating routine tasks are the general areas of most applicability for nonprofits. We've also seen uh, nonprofits starting to look into chatbots, which sound bad because for those of you who may not be familiar with chatbots, chatbots are basically robots without a body. They're machines that will connect to users via a chat window and will reply And a lot of times people aren't aware that they're talking to a chatbot. So I think most of us have had the experience when our phone rings and a very naturalistic voice says, 
hi, um, is this a good time to talk? And you will say yes or no and go on with this conversation before we realize that we're talking to a machine. The chatbots are very similar and they, uh, they do require some intelligence, but they are able to address routine kinds of interactions with constituents via chat, thereby reducing the time that your staff have to spend. Those are just a few of the areas that are really exciting and interesting for uh, the nonprofit sector. I have to ask before we continue, Lisa, blink twice if you're a robot. <laughs> that was a, that was uh, better. A, maybe would, that was better a would be to thing. ask me to um, would be for to know that I laughed because uh, humor is one thing that is almost impossible. I think it's impossible. We will know when we've constructed an AI, not by the famous Turing test, which is the way that Alan Turing came up with to determine if someone is a computer or a robot by whether or not they can pass as a human. So if you're having, that's why your your question was very funny because you were just conducting a Turing test with me to try to figure out if I was a robot or not. And um, the, uh, but I do think that the fact that I laughed at your question was the conclusive proof that I am not a robot. <laughs> that's exactly what the robots would want us to think. It may be too late. <laughs> Okay. Uh, but humor is very fun, very, very hard for, for computers to understand and demonstrate humor. Hi, this is Mark Rivna from the Nonprofit Times. You might remember me from such stories as the NPT 100 or the best nonprofits to work for. If you haven't heard, the Nonprofit Times has its own podcast. It's called Fresh Research. Each month, we talk to the authors of great, fresh research about the nonprofit sector. Check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find it at thenonprofittimes.com backslash fresh hyphen research. Or join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag fresh research. Okay, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of potential out there. You know, it's still, it feels like a, a fog of supercomputers and super abilities that are far beyond, um, far beyond a nonprofit saying, like, I'm going to create my, my own, you know, machine learning algo to do X or Y versus I'm going to passively use the, the many tools that are afforded to me through the productization of AI, and it seems like most nonprofits are uh, beginning to be able to take advantage of what I'd call the productization of AI. Uh, do you agree with that? I think it's still early days, and the jury is still out uh, in that these AI tools available from Microsoft, Amazon, Salesforce, many other large technology vendors have packaged AI tools. They we are still in early days in applying them. And uh, what, what we do and what we're, we're very uh, interested in helping organizations to assess the applicability of AI to their work. And that's really the first step is to, to pilot or to scope out and to do an assessment because we've come full circle you need to have large quantities of data 
of good data for AI to work. And uh, that assessment of whether or not your data will actually lend itself to the kinds of processing that AI requires, we would want to do, you'd want to do that first to do really an assessment of the applicability and the probability of success before you invested a large amount in AI. I think that's a, that's a fair warning. Um, for sure. Uh, on the topic of, of sort of warnings, you know, let's say I'm working in civil rights. Uh, I may already be aware of some of the downstream on the ground impacts of AI. And this like sort of touches, I guess, into AI ethics. Just because we've found a data set doesn't mean it's not a biased data set. And if we create an algorithm that can simply be biased faster than the humans that created that data, is that a good thing or a terrible thing? Yes, that, that is the fear. And I've been very pleased that uh, there's been a lot of uh, awareness around the potential for AI to do more harm than good, because you're absolutely right that if the actions of a, a group are biased, all the data, when run through the complex calculations that AI would perform, would simply encode that bias. It would determine that it would reflect that bias in future decisions. And the classic example is is in giving out uh, loans, for example, or the equivalent of what was done, what was called redlining, uh, where People were not allowed to uh, live in certain neighborhoods and or they were steered to certain neighborhoods, uh, creating great divisions in society uh, when or were being turned down for uh, mortgages based on uh, illegal attributes. And we want to be very careful to reflect on and test what the systems are doing. As a matter of fact, along these lines, uh, it's been proposed that there be a fourth law of robotics. Um, Arthur C. Clarke many years ago came up with the three laws of robotics. Uh, the first one was, you know, never kill a human or never hurt a human. I don't remember the other two. But the fourth one uh, that's being proposed is that any artificial intelligence must explain what the basis was for any decision that it is making as a way to provide visibility into these kinds of potential for bias because it is a real uh, issue and there's many examples of systems that have been trained on data sets encoding existing bias and the interesting reader will post this link back with the podcast uh, might be want to look at a book called uh, weapons of math destruction how Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy by Kathy O'Neill, which was published a year and a half ago. And it's really a very, very good analysis of how artificial intelligence can encode bias and really lead to some some undesirable society side, societal side effects. Yeah, the, you know, the warnings are out there. I like the, you know, the work being done uh, around... Uh, around it, what I've seen at conferences as well. Um, 
oh my gosh. So Isaac Asimov's laws, I think, uh, also are really fun about this. The 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 law one: a, ro- a robot may not injure a human being uh, through inact through inaction or allow a human being come to harm. Law two: a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders conflict with the first law. And three. A robot must protect its own existence as long as protection. Again, first law, second law. Um. <laughs> That's what I was. I I said uh, Asimov, but it, I said Arthur C. Clarke. But yes, it's Asimov's laws of I'm robotics, a, of course. I'm a huge Isaac yes. uh, Asimov fan, so I, I couldn't I couldn't let the people be uh, deprived of that. Uh, no, so you're moving, absolutely right. <laughs> moving uh, moving in this direction. Um, I know, like, I'm tempted to play the pro-con game, but I'm more tempted to surprise you with the following. You and I are going to have, like, a, an idea off. Uh, I'm going to give you... <laughs> I'm going to give you a nonprofit and what they do in a cause, and you're going to, like, rattle off, off the top of your head, what you think potential AI machine learning opportunities could be for that. Does that sound terrifying? I'll, I'm game. Okay. Uh, first up, uh, this is a nonprofit focused on recycling. They collect large amounts of recycling, let's say in San Francisco, uh, and they have to bring it all back, sort it all out and figure it all out. And, you know, basically it's a fee for service. Uh, is there a use for AI here? Oh, I think you'd be hard pressed to come up with examples where I couldn't come up with some uses. Oh, so challenge! Right Let's, go. The top Let's of my go. Head. Let's go. <laughs> right off the top of my head, um, I thought of two areas. One was to detect patterns in the volume and nature of the recycling to better optimize the collections, and the second was to analyze the people who are recycling to determine what those attributes are and use them to identify people in those categories who aren't currently recycling and then try to reach out to them directly. So it's about um, using the data that you have to discover actionable insights that will increase the efficiency and the effectiveness and also just the volume of your work. So those are two um, two areas okay. where such a next such up, a group, I, I I'm dealing do. in education, and I run a, an education program for after school kids, and I deal with art. I might deal with writing, uh, but we're trying to improve literacy outcomes for young people through our program on the ground. So you know, it could be implemented through boys and girls, or a group like Art in Action, or uh, anything else like you know, sort of working on the ground with kids. How do I that's use a AI? great ex- that's a great one that's actually a classic example where artificial intelligence can predict which child is likely to drop out um, what what exactly each child might need to get to the next level in in their uh, art to identify um, really to get on top of of to get on top of barriers to success before the child is disengaged from the program to keep them there. So that retention and to help tailor the, the programs to maximize success. So these types of – that application would only work if 
it, it works best when you're collecting information after they've left the program so that you'll be able to better correlate the specifics of the program to long-term success. Okay, I deal with a fundraising department and, frankly, organization who raises money to solve a disease, be it cancer uh, or, or other uh, but I'm on the fundraising side, so sure we're like maybe investing in like the you know the people in in white coats that are analyzing the outcomes, but we're just writing checks as an organization. How do I use AI? Well, you would use it to be more effective at fundraising by identifying donors that are more likely to uh, that are capable of giving more that the system has automatically identified as a good prospect to ask for more uh, money, as well as to prioritize and screen new prospects for their giving ability as well so that you can raise even more money. Um, unfortunately, we've seen the impact of micro-targeting, for example, in social media in influencing people's perceptions and in, um, in providing uh, really highly tailored information that will appeal to them. And that that's all based on AI type analysis. My organization deals with creating jobs and we do job trainings, job placements, re-education. Um, and it seems like AI is just taking all of the jobs. How do I use it to <laughs> stop doing that? Well, it's, uh, it's really about matching. It's about taking hundreds of thousands of pieces of data about specific individuals, their history of employment, their education, where they live, their skills, and hundreds of thousands of potential jobs, and correlating that with the success at actually landing the job and staying in the job to better match individuals to jobs. And the, the beauty of uh, artificial intelligence for that type of application is that the computer doesn't know that it's not typical to have women running the steamrollers on the road crew. So it's going to be very unbiased in matching individuals to potential jobs and surface jobs that a human might not think of. And that's one of, again, the real benefits. It's funny because it's a benefit, but it was also a concern. But one of the real benefits is that it's only looking at the data. It's not considering uh, biases that humans have. It's trying to be very comprehensive. And because it can run through so much data so quickly, it really does have the ability to optimize uh, these matches. Ideal. I, Lisa, I deal in direct service. I look people in the eye. I run a soup kitchen. I run a thrift store. I am working with elderly on a similar to Meals on Wheels type of situation. But ultimately, you can't automate empathy where I come from. And it's all about that handshake and respect I give people in person. Like, come on, how is AI helping me? It's in the back scenes. It's definitely in the back office. I I am completely in agreement with you that uh, that AIs shouldn't replace the human touch. There's so much we learn 
especially in these contexts, by our own observations of uh, the individuals as we're interacting with them. But if we're collecting enough information, we can then better identify uh, ways to further help them in a more automated way, as well as just very small uh, improvements to our operations. For example, optimizing the drop-off route for meals for Meals on Wheels. It's a very hard problem to solve, and this technology can actually suggest routes for you. Uh, technically, AI minimize. has not solved. Sorry, I got to interrupt. Technically, AI has not solved the traveling salesman problem. <laughs> you know too much, George. So <laughs> I'm, I'm calling no, you out here. I haven't done it. You're absolutely right. The traveling salesman problem is unsolvable, provably unsolvable. Uh, but I oh, don't think you would know not that. that it's not um, with but, that attitude. <laughs> it's, uh, but it still, uh, it still actually can do um, what's called satisficing, which is a way to approximate an optimal solution. Uh, but you're absolutely right. That is Dude, not a satisficing problem that AI sounds can like, solve. Uh, satisficing sounds like how my dad drives around and claims he's not lost. He's, he, he's satisfied <laughs> us through many a situation. I'll say that. Love you, Dad. <laughs> Uh, alrighty. Um, you've done admirably with, uh, like literally I gave you no notice of this, but I just like seeing how people perform. Well done. You get one gold star. Uh, okay. <laughs> Lisa, uh, before we move into rapid fire, uh, is there anything else that you just feel like people should know or be on the lookout with regard to this technology? Well, I'm biased myself as we all are. I think that education is important and I would encourage everyone to to do some analysis on whether or if AI could be of benefit to them, certainly before diving in whole hog because it is new. Um, but I would want to know. I think it's important to to ask the question within your own organizations. The time is now and you might be surprised at what surfaces. Okay, are you ready for rapid fire? I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Brilliant. Keep your second uh keep your responses within seconds, 30 seconds ideally. Okay, what is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? We started using a system called Gather Content for our website design and development projects to assist with content organization and editing. What tech issues are you currently battling with? I'm battling with the distraction factor of tools like email and Slack. I think we're getting um, – it's very hard for us to stay focused for long periods of time because of the plethora of distractions and the 24-7 news cycle. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? Artificial intelligence for nonprofits. Talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today. Well, it's funny. This isn't a uh, this isn't a technology thing. Uh, but um, I, if I could go back, I would uh, toot my horn uh, more. Uh, I always believed that uh, if you just kept your head down and did a good job, you would get recognized and promoted with your Broadway uh, show motif. Um, in Rent, my favorite musical, 
in the Over the Moon song with the cow, she says it's a female thing. But I do think uh, that that is and caring about office politics in general. Can NGOs successfully go out of business? Apparently, I've had at least a dozen of our nonprofit clients go out of business since we started working with them. To note, was it a successful exit? Many were. They were uh, they wound down because their mission was complete, or the foundation uh, dispensed with all of their uh, assets, their endowments spent down, or they merged into a larger group and created some some real benefits through that. If I had tossed you in the hot tub time machine and back to the beginning uh, of you know co-founding co-founding Fionta, what advice would you give yourself? If you do what you love, you never have to work a day in your life. If you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry, what would it do? Well, in the technology arena, it would provide more support for funding of nonprofit technology and understanding that technology is really a core area of capacity building like fundraising and governance and finance. But in the nonprofit sector overall, I think it should merge more. I think there's a huge amount of duplicative effort in the sector and continue to focus on really using data to drive impact measurements and view a lot of what nonprofits do as social scientists. How did you get started in the social impact sector? Well, it's an old story. It's so old, it's almost a cliche. I got to a point in my career where I wanted to feel like I had left the world a better place than when I arrived. And I wanted to use all of my experience and uh, expertise to help the social impact space. And so I started a company focused on technology for nonprofits to do that. What advice would you give college graduates looking to enter the social impact sector? The main thing is uh, to really do a lot of research because more and more and more we're seeing uh, companies that have social impact objectives, this concept of a triple bottom line. There's a lot of helper groups, and I think it's important to take your time when you're looking for your first job to ensure that you have a good understanding of the social impact space, looking at B corporations, for example, uh, social impact corporations, and just take your time because uh, there's no end of options out there. All right, final question. How do people find you? How do people help you? So we're at fionta.com, F-I-O-N-T-A.com. I'm L-R-A-U, Lisa Rao, at fionta.com. You can go to our website, check us out. Um, um, yeah. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, putting up with my shenanigans, uh, and you know, I think we we learned something here and gave uh, gave some folks uh, a lot of fodder, at least. Thank you, George. This was a wonderful conversation. I'm very impressed that you you got me at least twice. So <laughs> fair I, fair game. I, I would say who's counting and that this is not a contest, but I'm always <laughs> counting and I'm always in contest. Lisa, thank you. Thank you, George. We're going to have a lot of show notes for you on this one. Episode number 126, tons of links if you want to learn more about 
you know, the, the practical uses of narrow AI, uh, there's no shortage of opportunities out there. And it's important. Um, it's important that people like Lisa are uh, making sure that we pay attention to what the downsides can be if used incorrectly. But more importantly, uh, you know, beating the drum, getting us excited. Uh, the fact that like, no matter, you know, what I kind of threw at her, she was able to say like, no, 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 there's, uh, there's a there, there, there's practical applications. Uh, and they're only getting stronger. You know, it's, uh, it's 2019 and we're only seemingly at the beginning of this. So I hope it got you excited. I hope it didn't overwhelm you. Take a look at some of the research. Uh, yeah. Take a look at some of the resources. Uh, episode number 126, uh, whole slash podcast. And special thanks to Greg Thomas, music.org. Awesome music, Greg. Thanks for letting us use it. And to our new multimedia intern, Tim Seberger. Uh, thanks, man. You can find uh, you can find Tim's podcast on iTunes. Just search for Culture, a podcast of wise. Thanks, Tim. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.